You are listening to the Religicatheo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Welcome. Reverend James M. Lawson is an American activist and university professor. He was a leading theoretician and tactician of nonviolence within the civil rights movement. During the 1960s, he served as a mentor to the Nashville Student Movement and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He read Gandhi's autobiography and discovered that nonviolent struggle, as Gandhi lived it in South Africa and India, would be his way forward. Take a listen. This is for people who weren't here. Could you sort of almost like reiterate some of what you said there? You know, what was the the key points that you were making? Because it was very powerful what you were talking about. I've been a student of nonviolent struggle almost since age eight, initially out of the gospel of Jesus, which is a gospel of compassion and love and justice. Then in 1947, I read Gandhi began to read Gandhi's autobiography and began to read what I could find about Gandhi and then discovered that nonviolent struggle as he experimented with it and tried to live it and fought many campaigns in South Africa and India was the way forward for me. So I've practiced it up against racism in the United States, which has been always a severe form of racism. You could have in my youth and adulthood, you could have a reservation for a hotel in Washington, D.C. for a very important conference, like a White House conference on children and youth, which was my experience in 1950. I get to the hotel with my reservation and the desk people say to me, well, we're all full up. And I could tell by the keeping my eyes in their face and all that they were lying. Just to prove it to myself, I go outside, walk a little bit on the sidewalk, and find a public phone. I call the desk, I call the hotel, the same hotel I've just walked out of. And I say to them, I'm stuck in Washington tonight. I'm at the Union Station. Do you have space? They tell me yes. (laughs) They take my name again. (laughs) And I say, I'll come in a taxi. I'll be there. 15 minutes, maybe. I go back into the hotel. After a while, I walk, I go back in the hotel. I say, I'm the man who called from the Union Station. And again, they say, no space. (laughs) So you could do that. You could walk into a restaurant in Washington, D.C. and get refused. This is in the 50s. This is the 50s, 60s, yeah, into the 70s. All right. As well. You had such incidents going on all across the country, places that would not serve Jews, places that would not serve Mexicans, places that would not serve Indians, places that had signs in them, white only, <laughs> especially in the southern part of the country. All of this meant a great amount of public hostility because these signs are teaching white people the wrong thing about themselves. So there are many stories like 
mine and yeah. like that. So I was resistant to all of that. I was a resistant to every form of Jim Crow law and practice. And then I became in high school both also resistant to every form of bigotry. I saw the anti-Catholic stuff that went in my high school and the anti-Jewish stuff. So I became bitterly against all forms of religious bigotry as well. I spent 13 months in federal prison as a prisoner of conscience because of my work and life. And then I went to India in 53 until 56 as a United Methodist missionary. And I was able to follow in the place of Gandhi, meet Jawaharlal Nehru, meet a number, a number of folk in that movement, in that struggle. Able to buy books by Gandhi that were not available in the United States. So I uh, then came back, shook hands with Martin King on February the 6th, 1957 in Ohio, where I grew up. And he urged me to come south because the bus boycott had just ended. This was the first major nonviolent campaign, which he and others labeled as a nonviolent campaign. So... I moved south that year and then began to travel around the south, working in other movement, most counseling with people, teaching nonviolent struggle from the scriptures, from the point of view of the scriptures, point of view of Gandhi, from episodes I had read about and studied in the United States, Europe, Asia, less than Latin America, in South Africa, however, and independence forces were, of course, already alive and trying to develop. So I worked with Martin King then. I became the major teacher. Congressman John Lewis calls me the architect of the nonviolent movement in the United States. Diane Nash says it was because of me that such a widespread part of the civil rights movement was a nonviolent movement. And I don't call what I did and what King and Rosa Parks and others did civil rights movement. I call our movement, the nonviolent movement of America, the black freedom movement, the black justice movement, because we didn't talk civil rights. We talked local issues, jobs, freedom, equality, mm -hmm. <laughs> justice. The civil rights movement is a much bigger umbrella affair. You have the wing of that movement that you can call the constitutional wing, which went after getting the Constitution to judge racism as unconstitutional, which they did. So that was one wing of the movement. You had then, you have many, many small wings, but my wing primarily caused literally tens of thousands of people in more than 200, 300 places across the United States and eventually beginning in 1960 in every state of the Union, my wing began to cause a direct action and put nonviolence on the map in the United States. In terms of what you were talking about kind of for here and the things that really... Well, the, the perspective I brought here, I said this across three or four days, I urged the world religions to unabashedly adopt nonviolent struggle and recognize they had a way of going after the structures of the hatred in our world and the structures of violence. And they could do it city by city in local places, do the work, which is the way to work gets done. So 
I also apologize for Christianity because Christianity tied up itself with the power, <laughs> political military power, which is still is tied up with that. But on yesterday morning, I basically tried to push the notion of nonviolent struggle, that the world religions had the power, if they wanted to, to get, engage in struggle. And this had to begin with ordinary people and all. So that was my, sort of my third or fourth or fifth presentation yesterday morning. Yeah. But really reaffirming the power of nonviolence and Absolutely. the significance of it, because it's not that, yeah. front and center and, in quite the same way. And if I, would, if I had been pushed around here some, in some of the sessions about violence, I would have simply said, well... Because I get this question academically all the time. You see the efficacy of violence in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, where the United States has spent $6 trillion on the Iraq war alone. And a lot of that money went into the hands of corrupt corporations in the United States and was never used in Iraq. But that's the end of violence. It can't go any further than that. Yeah. Devastation. And hatred. That doesn't change hearts and minds. It cannot, it cannot deal with a new world society. It cannot deal with the religions coming together in compassion, or the nations learning to work with each other to solve the problems that are available. So part of the, the gift that you had to offer, as you were right, you were on the ground at a time of total racism in this country, yes, in the yes. South especially, and, and uh, so you've seen it work. Yes, uh, yes. The present chaos in the United States is because the forces of resistance to racism, the forces that want to preserve racism and hostility to the Indian, the forces that want to preserve male chauvinism and the oppression of women and the abuse of women, the forces that think that violence is efficacious, <laughs> that's what the present chaos in the United States represents. Plus, then, the chaos of what I call plantation capitalism. I did say that also on Monday, I think it was, or Sunday, Saturday, I can't remember which. But anyway, those four poisons have been very strong in the United States across the centuries. And the chaos today is because the forces wanting to keep our society badly divided, wanting to keep great areas of inequality wanting to allow for an economy that gathers wealth for the few and then forces millions of people to work two and three jobs just to keep food on their table, that wants health care to be in the hands of private business for profit, wants the public schools to be privatized. All of that's what's going on in our country. Those forces have come, now come to the foreground in the Republican Party primarily, but also some in the Democratic Party, but not as bad, but Democratic Party has to be faulted because it, ought to, it should know better. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts about, you know, there's a wealth accumulating aspect of technology and a diverting aspect Well, that's of plantation technology. capitalism. Plantation capitalism has it coming out of Europe, as it did in the 17th century, out of Spain and Portugal in the 15th century, 16th century. Many of them were looking for wealth, <laughs> looking for land. And they had the notion that we're, all these... In North America, South America, these lands are all open and available for the taking. They're uninhabited by real people that's because right. they were Christian, they, right? That, that, or white. They, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They were the other. The other. They were the other. And so the settlement of this land had in it that strong urge to get wealthy. 
So what we in the United States have done with our economy, as no other nation has done, I think, better than any other nation, at least, is that we have created a different kind of nobility, a nobility rooted entirely not in name, but in wealth gathering. And that's become a big goal for lots of technologists, a lot of people who, who work through Microsoft and through the computer and the rest of it. And a lot of young people are flocking to those cities where that possibility is going on because they want to be billionaires before they're 30. So that element of plantation capitalism has become, in many ways, the major force in the United States, so much so that they do not see that when they do not pay good wages to all their people like Walmart, for an example, or like Bank of America, they do not see that they are cheating and robbing democracy, that they are hurting the nation and hurting the world because they're so imbued with this notion that wealth is available and I must grab some. And there's a lot of just individuation or separation or not really caring about other built into that to care. So much. Well, that's what that is. I, mean, I will say this about President Trump as I've watched him over the decades. President Trump is a man who defines freedom as I gained a lot of wealth. I began to gain it at age three, according to New York Times thing a couple of weeks ago. And freedom is my right as a billionaire to do whatever I want to do. That's who I am. And I do not have to be a part of a society. And that's what wealth does to people's minds. It becomes a form of God. Yeah, and it does continue yeah. white privilege, too. Yeah. I mean, that's... And helps them to perpetuate white privilege and white male privilege. Yeah. yeah. So do you see any hope? Yes. I, yeah, of course there's hope. That's... that's <laughs> Yeah, as long as there's human beings, there's hope. But in addition to that, the massive numbers of people in our world and in the United States and Canada do not want to control the oil of the earth or the diamonds of the earth or the water of the earth. Their agenda is a different agenda. Gandhi was the first one that made me aware of that. Their agenda is their families, their children, cultivating their lives, cultivating their neighborhoods. That's the agenda. So against that agenda of the masses of people in the world, the wars and the wealth gain stuff has a very limited life. And it's a question of time, and it's a question also of when sufficient numbers of millions of people wake up in their own countries and decide that they're going to move the country, move themselves in their country in a different direction. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.